Amen. Well, we're in John chapter 11 this morning. John chapter 11. And we're going to talk a little bit about why do bad things happen to good people? On November 19th, 1966, Harold Kushner's life changed forever. Um, the reason is it was on that day that the doctors explained to him that his three-year-old son, Aaron, had a very rare uh, genetic disorder called progeria. And uh, if, if you're not familiar with progeria, it's this, it's this really, really horrible condition where your body ages at about eight to ten times faster than a normal human being. And so uh, this is a picture of a, a seven-year-old little guy with progeria. And it's a very, very debilitating, it's a horrible condition. The average lifespan for, for a child with progeria is like 13 years old. So they don't live very long at, at all. Well, this news uh, was absolutely devastating to Harold Kushner. And uh, over the next 10 years, he watched his son slowly die. Like when he was 12 months old, his little son Aaron, 12 months old, hair started thinning and falling out. He stopped growing at three years old, didn't get any bigger after that. And um, by the time he was, I think, 10 years old, by the time he was 10, his body had the wear and tear on it of someone physiologically in their 60s. So 10-year-old boy with a body of a 60-year-old. And so uh, little Aaron died in his mother's arms two days after his 14th birthday. That's when he passed away. And uh, the death of his son really caused Harold Kushner to ask the same question that you and I ask at some point in our lives, maybe a couple times in our lives. Why, God? Why are you allowing this to happen to me and my family and to little Aaron? What did I do that was so bad that you were punishing me and my family with this horrible, horrible trial? This tragedy, it didn't make any sense to Harold Kushner at all. And it particularly didn't make sense because Harold Kushner is actually, I haven't told you this yet, he's actually a rabbi. He's actually a very devout, conservative Jewish rabbi. And uh, he's a rabbi to over 500 families in Massachusetts. He has his own synagogue there. And uh, after Aaron's death, Rabbi Kushner said, after Aaron died, I, I couldn't make sense of it all. After all, we didn't deserve to be punished like this. I mean, here's a man serving God. He's devout. He's going to synagogue every Saturday. He's trying to obey the Jewish scriptures. And, and he's, he's seeing all this with his son. And he's like, well, God, what, what the heck did we do? Why did I deserve this? Why, God, is this happening to me? And although Rabbi Kushner had sat with countless families over the years and comforted them and walked with them through their trials and pain, when it came to this particular trial, he was bewildered. And it took him about four years, he said, four years to kind of like go back and like grapple with like what he believed about God and sort of like looking at his experience and looking at the Bible and looking at history and looking at Aaron. It took him four years to wrap his mind around it all. And after four years, uh, he, he wrote what he learned in a book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. It's a New York Times bestseller. It sold millions of copies. And in that book, Rabbi Harold Kushner explains what he learned through the experience of losing Aaron, his son. I'm just going to take one quote from the book that I, th I think sums it up pretty solidly and well. Rabbi Kushner said this in the book. I believe in God. 
But I do not believe the same things about him that I did years ago when I was growing up or when I was a theological student. I recognize his limitations. He's limited in what he can do by laws of nature and by the evolution of human nature and human moral freedom. I no longer hold God responsible for illnesses and accidents and natural disasters because I realize that I gain little and I lose so much when I blame God for those things. Listen to this. I can worship a God who hates suffering but cannot eliminate it more easily than I can worship a God who chooses to make children suffer and die for whatever exalted reason. In other words, Rabbi Harold Kushner believes now in a God who's, who's all-loving, he's all-gracious, but he's not all-powerful. He's not in control of everything. One theological word that we use is the word sovereignty. Sovereignty means to be in control of everything, right? Rabbi Kushner believes in a God now who's all-love, he's all-grace, but he's not sovereign, he's not all-powerful. And that's why elsewhere in the book, he, he said, God stands for justice, for fairness, and for compassion, but nature is morally blind. The laws of nature do not make exceptions for nice people, and that's why people get sick and get hurt as much as anyone does. Rabbi Kushner believes in a God who's all-loving but not all-powerful. And listen, this, is, uh, this was sort of like the best-case scenario that he could come up with in his mind. When he looked at the suffering, and he looked at Aaron, he looked at his family, he looked at the Bible, looked at his life, the best thing that he could come up with is, well, God must not be in control, because I know he's all good. And, uh, you know, when we're faced with the problem of evil and suffering in the world, we usually reason that one of two things must be true, right? Either God isn't all-powerful, or else he would have stopped this from happening. Or, God isn't all loving. Or he would have never allowed it to happen in the first place. We, when we go through times of evil and suffering, oftentimes people, they, they feel like they have to choose one or the other. Either God's all good and he's not all powerful, or he's all powerful and doesn't care about us. He's just like this dictator. And when forced to choose between both of those options, Kushner decided to opt for the God who's all love, but not all powerful. And listen, I think that Kushner's God is the God of this culture. I really believe that. I think the reason that when bad things happen to good people sold millions of copies and was a New York Times bestseller is because people today tend to view God that way. You know, he, he's loving, he's gracious, he, he has nothing but good intentions towards human beings. But at the end of the day, you know, he's kind of, he's sort of limited. You know, he's sort of like, He's not all powerful. He's kind of like this grandfather figure, you know, in the sky on the rocking porch in the front porch of heaven with a snuggie on. You know, he's got nothing but good intentions for you. He's got a bowl of Werther's Originals just sitting there, but he can't get out of the rocking chair and give you any, you know. He's got good thoughts and good, good feelings towards you, but he's not quite powerful enough to do anything about it. I think that's the God of our culture today. And, and the problem is when you come to the Bible... The Bible actually portrays God as like this all-consuming, all-powerful, like micromanager who's like all up in the details. Seriously, the Bible talks about a God who is like in control of even like when countries go to war. Amos, right, said, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless God has done it, right? If that trumpet of judgment 
of that foreign army coming in, blast God is behind it because God is behind wars, the Bible says. God's also behind the weather, right? Not Jim Cantori. The Bible says that God is behind weather. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, right? And he causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, brings out wind from his storehouses. He does it all. God's in control of that too. And the Bible even goes so far as to say that, and this is going to be, this is going to be hitting home today, but the Bible actually says that God is in control of even things like birth defects, like progeria. Remember Moses was giving all these reasons why he couldn't go back to Pharaoh and God said this to Moses, who gave human beings their mouths? Moses is like, I'm not a good speaker. And God's like, well, who gave you the, your mouth? Who gave you the ability to speak? And further, who makes people deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God is in complete control of everything, even the really horrible things. And listen, that's actually a comfort to us. That's not threatening. That's actually giving us hope in life. In fact, I heard a story recently of a, of a young family. They lost their toddler. I think the, think the boy, I think he may have drowned in the pool. Horrible. Well, the pastor, I guess, went to the house to comfort the family. And when the pastor was there, he told this young dad, he said, listen, I just want you to know one thing. God had nothing to do with what happened to your son. He has nothing but love for you and your family. He would have never allowed that to happen. And this young dad looked this pastor in the eye and said, why are you trying to take away my only hope? That God does have a plan through this. That there's something going to come out of this that's good. And it's not just that God's a World Cup goalie who gave up the goal and missed the call. I mean, what comfort is there in that? And I know that pastor meant well, but this young father knew better. God allowed that to happen. And it must have been for a very, 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 very good reason. And listen, disbelieving in the sovereignty of God does not solve any, any problems at all. It doesn't solve the problem of suffering. In fact, it only makes more problems for us. I mean, if you, if you disbelieve the Bible when it talks about God being in control of everything, you open up a whole can of worms, a whole can of worms. I mean, first of all, if God is not in control, then that means we are actually right now under the sovereignty of Satan. It means Satan's on the loose. He can do whatever he wants. You know, if God is the old grandpa figure who can't get out of the rocking chair and he's a B12 shot, he's just kind of, he's weak and anemic and he can't do anything, well then he's sitting fretting watching Satan wreak havoc in the world. We are living under the sovereignty of Satan if God is not sovereign. Also, even worse than that, wickedness is never going to be punished. I mean, there is no ultimate guarantee that good will triumph over evil if God is not sovereign. Right? We have no idea what's going to happen. It's going to come down to the fourth quarter and whoever makes the last shot is going to win, I guess. I don't know. I mean, you can't tell people that God's got a plan anymore or everything's going to work out in the end or time heals all wounds. You can't tell people any of that stuff because you have no guarantee now that good's going to triumph because you've killed off the only being in the universe who's powerful enough to make sure that good is going to triumph in the end. I mean, murderers, rapists, people who get off scot-free, Casey Anthony, whoever it is, they, they commit murder and they get off scot-free. And you're going to say, what? There's never going to be a final reckoning. There's never going to be the, the scales balanced at the end. There's no resurrection. There's no final judgment. That's what you're saying if you're saying God's not all-powerful. 
And honestly, if you say God is not powerful, if you say God is not sovereign like Rabbi Kushner, if that's your belief system, then listen, we all might as well be atheists. Just think about that for a second. If God is not sovereign, then we might as well, why are we even here right now? Why, seriously, why are we here right now at this time if God is not all-powerful? I mean, why are we even practicing religion? Because if God's not in control, then why should I strive for purity and holiness and self-denial? And why should I suffer for what's written in this book and try to like follow it to a T? Why should I do any of that if God is not all-powerful and he's not ruling right now everything? Why? What's the point? I mean, if God is all-loving and benevolent, but he's not all-powerful, I'm not interested in worshiping him because I've got better things to do with my time. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I started coming to church, I was 25 years old. I didn't grow up in church. My life changed at 25. I did not start coming to church because someone came up and told me that there was like this all-benevolent, all-loving, all-gracious, all-kind being out there who has nothing but good thoughts towards us. That was not the primary reason that I started coming to church. I mean, if the criteria for worship is just that the person is like this gracious, all-loving, all-benevolent being, well, then we might as well worship, right? We might as well worship this God, Freddie Mercury, the lead singer of the band Queen, okay? Because, listen, do y'all know about Queen a little bit? It's okay, you can, you can admit if you know Queen. You can admit, you're going to pop them in the CD on the way home probably anyway. Listen, I dare you to find one bad quote from someone about Freddie Mercury. I guarantee you, this guy, I mean, is the most benevolent. Not everyone's like, he was so warm, so loving, so kind. Everybody loved him. This guy was an international rock star who brought in stray cats off the street when he was home. Big old stinking mansion, bro. He's like, come on in. You know, he's got all these cats in his house running around. I mean, if, if being kind and benevolent is the criteria for worship, then when we come to church, we should have two things, a cross and a mic stand, right, for Freddie Mercury, Okay. Because if that's the sole criteria why we worship something is because it's all benevolent and all kind and all gracious, well, then we might as well worship a lot of things and a lot of people. But listen, I started coming to church because I heard two things, that God loved me, he was gracious, and he was kind and benevolent, but I also heard this, God is a king and he rules everything and he created me and then I'm going to have to give an account to him one day and it's not going to go well for me unless I bow my knee to Jesus Christ. That's the reason I started coming, okay? The good news was good. But if God is just some being out there who's like writing poetry about humans all day but has no power, I ain't got time to worship a God like that. I want to go surf. <laughs> I'm going to go fish. I ain't coming to church. There's a lot of people out there that love human beings. But I don't worship them. And so if we start rejecting that God is all-powerful, why we should give up the charade, bro. Why are we even here? It's what A.W. Pink said in his book, The Sovereignty of God. He said this, To deny the sovereignty of God is to enter upon a path which, if followed to its logical conclusion, leads to blank atheism. If you want to know why people in the culture, they ain't got no problem with a God of love and a God of grace, but they don't want to admit or they don't want to believe that God is all-powerful. So it's kind of like, yeah, you know, he loves us and he's up there, but he ain't going to do nothing about anything. That's a God who's not even worthy of our worship at all. And so denying the sovereignty of God 
to explain away suffering only opens up more problems. It only opens up a can of worms. And the Bible is clear that God is both all-powerful and all-loving. And so here's the question, okay? That was all introduction, okay? Why then, if God is both, if he's not either or, why then does he allow suffering in the world? Here's the rad thing. John 11 tells us. It actually tells us one of the reasons why God allows suffering in the world. And as Tommy read, um, it's a long passage, so I'm going to kind of cherry pick things here and there, okay, because it's huge. Um, But what's really rad is that everybody in John 11 that's involved believe two things about Jesus, that he was all loving and that he was all powerful. Check this out. I mean, it's right here in the text. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died, right? You could have stopped this guy from dying. But even now I know whatever you ask from God, God's going to give you. In other words, you have the power, right? Like Snap saying, you got the power to raise my brother from the dead. He's all powerful. They also knew that Jesus was all loving. Verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then they saw Jesus weep, right? And they said, see how he loved Lazarus. This text could not be clear. Jesus has the power to stop suffering, and he also has the love for the person that's suffering. He's got both for Lazarus. So the question is this, why in the world would Jesus who has the power and the love, allow the person that he loves and the power to stop from suffering to suffer and die. In fact, why, when Jesus heard Lazarus was dying, did he stay two extra days before he came back? That's what the text also says, which is kind of strange. When he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. In other words... Jesus dilly-dallied. He lingered. He lingered. That doesn't sound like a very loving thing to me. If you've got the cure, if you've got the power to save someone, and someone you love is suffering, bro, you jump on the first plane home to get to them. You don't linger. And I read this. I couldn't help but think of Seinfeld. Uh, I'm not sure if you're a Seinfeld uh, fan. I am. Um. But there's this one episode where Elaine's dating this one guy, and they're supposed to meet at the movie theater. You know, they're just dating her. I'll meet you there. She gets there, walks in the door, starts looking around for her date, her boyfriend. She doesn't see him. The manager walks over to her and says, hey, are you Elaine Bennis? And she goes, yeah, it's me. And he said, listen, I just want you to know, your boyfriend was in a terrible accident, and he was rushed by ambulance to the hospital. So she kind of like, she's stunned. She steps back. She kind of absorbs it. And then she does something really strange. She walks over to the concession stand and she buys a box of juji fruit candies, is what she does, okay? And then she gets into the cab and goes to the hospital. So she walks in and, you know, there's her boyfriend. He's okay. He's fine. It was like a minor fender bender. So there's nothing wrong with him. But he sees the box of candy in her hand and he says, listen, he says, where did you get that box of juji fruit candy from? He goes, they don't sell that here in the hospital. And she is stone cold busted because she has to explain how she lingered, she dilly-dallied, right, at the theater after she got the news and she went and bought a box of candy and then she went to the hospital. She delayed like two minutes, right? I don't know how this ties in, but it was a short week for me, okay? But listen, it ties in, all right? You're supposed to go, give me a, give me a Baptist, like, holy, mm, give me a grunt or something, you know what I'm saying? 
I know we're not Pentecostals in here. We would have blown the roof off by now, you know, already if we had. But you can give me at least a holy grunt if you're Baptist. Um, but here's the deal. Jesus didn't dilly-dally five minutes for a box of juji fruits. Jesus dilly-dallies two full days and lets Lazarus die. You talk about really questioning someone's motives. It's like, I didn't seem like a very loving thing at all to do by Jesus. But here, here's the really, really, I think, cool thing. We don't have to like spend time like speculating like why Jesus dilly-dallied or loitered for two days. We don't have to speculate. The Bible actually tells us specifically why Jesus let Lazarus die. Look at verse 4. This is the reason. This illness is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Why do bad things happen to good people? Lazarus, not a perfect guy. He's a good guy though, right? Why does God, why does Jesus allow his buddy to die? For the glory of God. Now, this is a very, very important concept to understand. Truth. Because as 21st century Americans, um, a lot of times when we talk about like suffering and, you know, the bad things that happen in life, oftentimes, like the glory of God, it never even gets like an honorable mention in like the explanation. No one even brings that up. We usually get moralistic, you know? It's like I heard recently, like we've taken the first two chapters of the Bible out and the last two, where God creates everything and he makes everything and it's all about him. We've taken the first two and the last two of the Bible out and now it's all moralism in the middle, right? And so it's like, yeah, the reason that happened to that guy is because, you know, he, he's just got some character flaws and God's refining him and he's doing this and that. We only have like one category for suffering because we're sinners, right? Like, why did that happen? Dot, dot, dot. Because of something that you did, you know? That's the only explanation we have. And nobody really even talks about like the glory of God. But the Bible explicitly teaches that like everything that happens, everything, everything that happens is for the glory of God, everything. Which means that God is fundamentally at the center of the universe and everything exists to honor Him and to praise Him. And that's very important to understand because the most prevalent belief system today is something called humanism. Humanism. Humanism is the belief system that the purpose of everything that happens is to make me happy. To make man happy. But the Bible says the purpose of everything is to make God happy, right? Humanism wants to put man on the throne and man's needs and man's happiness, but the Bible is always putting God on the throne in the center of everything, right? And listen, I know humanism, it sounds like an innocent, like, you know, harmless, like a good thing. Like, oh man, shouldn't we just like, really? Shouldn't we want life to be about making man happy? And are you saying we're supposed to be sad? Or I know it sounds like a good thing at first, but here's the deal. The reason why that cashier at Walmart or at McDonald's, looks at you and gives you the stink eye and smirks when you come up to place your order and acts like you're inconveniencing them at their job. The reason that is is because of humanism, because they view even their job, their career, as something that's supposed to make them happy. It's like, why are you, why are you in my checkout line? I could be Snapchatting my friends right now, and I'd rather be doing that on my cell phone than actually ringing you up and doing my job. Humanism, believe it or not, actually ends up wrecking society. When everyone goes through life with a sense of entitlement, thinking, hey, it's all about me, it's all about me, it's all about me, how come you're not catering to my needs? Listen, when that's your view, 
Not only does suffering go out the window, and suffering seems unfair and unjust, but listen, even going to your job seems unjust. Even going to your stinking job, bro, is like, hey, I don't like that I have to go to work, you know, 40 hours a week. That's kind of unfair, you know? Aren't I supposed to be like a millionaire just because I went to high school? You know, people have this view today of life where they expect the keys to the universe to be handed over to them like Adam. And it's like, listen, bro, that's not the way it goes. Humanism, it sounds so seductive, but it actually ends up destroying and undermining our entire society because unless you have self-sacrifice, you don't have society. Unless you have soldiers and firemen and police officers who lay their lives down for others, unless you have parents who give their lives away for 18 years to raise kids, really 28 years now, I guess, because of, you know, kids are like El Nino. They come back every five years, you know, and they live with you. But here's the deal. You can laugh in church. It's okay. Um, Here's the deal, though. That can't happen without self-sacrifice. If you take self-sacrifice out of the fabric of society, it disintegrates. Amen. Amen. But humanism... The fact that everything exists to make me happy is so seductive. It's so seductive, it actually sneaks its way into church. A lot of Christians actually, believe it or not, are humanists more than they are Christians. And what happens is, is people, even Christian people, they begin coming to church and they begin to think, you know what? Everything exists to make me happy. Like, the reason that God exists is, like, for me. And the reason that God like made the angels and like the different ranks, like the cherubim and the seraphim, and like the reason there's like hosts of them is to like make me happy. And like the reason why like there's a billion galaxies is to like to make me happy. And like, you know what I'm saying? It, everything becomes about like them. And listen, did God intend to make man happy? Absolutely, but it's a byproduct. It's not the prime product. It's not the goal and the locus and the focus of life. But even the best Christians can fall into this like humanistic type thinking about the world, you know. You know, one of my heroes from the past is a Christian missionary. His name is Paris Reedhead. Maybe you've heard of him. Really, really godly dude. Uh, Great man of God, very concerned with things like social justice, um, caring for the poor and needy, he, uh, he, he was like always fighting for like humanitarian aid to be sent to like nations that were like impoverished. Always on the front lines of that, always. Which is an awesome thing. The Bible says that true religion is caring for widows and orphans. So that's a good and noble thing to do. It's what Christians should do. But what Paris didn't realize for many years is that the center of that philanthropy was not God and his glory, it was actually humanism. And the way that God rescued him from humanism was very interesting. It was a very interesting way to rescue someone from humanism. God actually sent him as a missionary to Africa to rescue him from humanism. And this is what he said one time. He gave his testimony. He said, the reason I originally went to Africa was I wanted to improve upon the justice of God. You know, he he would see pictures on like National Geographic of like people with like ulcers and they're malnourished and, you know, they're sick and they don't have clean water. And he's like, heart is breaking because he's thinking to himself, you know what? These people have a terrible existence on this earth. And if they don't hear about Jesus when they die, they're going to go on to an even worse existence in their afterlife. And so in his mind, he's thinking, this is totally not fair at all. I've got to get over there and I've got to preach the gospel to those people. And so he, by his own testimony, says that he went to Africa as a humanist because he was simply using the provisions of Jesus Christ to improve upon human misery and suffering. 
That's all he was doing. He was using his calling. And man was at the center of it all. This is what he said. He said, when I got to Africa, though, I was shocked. Because I quickly found out that the people that I saw in the pictures weren't poor and uninformed heathen people running around desperately looking for someone to come and tell them how to go to heaven. You know what he found out when he got there? He found out that the people in those magazines were just as hard-hearted, just as lustful, just as murderous. In fact, he said they were monsters of iniquity when he got there. He had no idea. He's like, he, he, he lands there, he's got Bibles and medicine and food, and he said they were all about the food and the medicine, but the Bibles, they don't want nothing to do with that. He said no one had time for, for the Bible or to hear about Jesus or God or anything else. He said when he got there, he found out that they were just as wicked as people were back here in the States. He's a country boy from Minnesota. I think he'd probably ever been out of the cornfields. He gets over there, he's like, man, people over here have hard hearts. And listen, this ticked him off. Paris Reedhead was mad. He goes, what in the heck? And he says that one day he got alone in his room, locked the door. He got alone with God. He got on his knees. And he said he basically told God off. And he got bold. And he said this. He said, God, how dare you lead me here to this place with these people who don't want anything at all to do with Christianity. You tricked me and you sold me a bill of goods. And he said as he was praying, God spoke to his heart very clearly. God gave him a word. God said this. He said, yes. This is actually from his testimony. Yes, the heathen are lost. But I didn't send you to Africa for the sake of the heathen. I sent you to Africa for my sake. They deserve hell, but I love them. And I endured the agonies of hell for them. And so I didn't send you out there for them. I sent you out there for me. And here it is. Do I not deserve the reward of my suffering? Don't I deserve those for whom I died? He said everything in like his entire Christian walk and heart changed like in a moment. He said like that one word from God like shredded his humanistic view of the world and it put God back on the throne. And this is what he said. He said, I realized, this is what he realized through that experience. He was trying to convince good men that they were in trouble with a bad God. When he realized he was actually trying to persuade bad men that they were in desperate need of the grace and mercy of a good God. Now, the way you view that in life, the way you view suffering, and the way you view people is going to hinge upon the fact, are you a humanist or are you a Christian? Do you understand that God's on the throne or is man on the throne? Paris Reedhead was delivered from humanism in a radical way, and he understood, once again, everything exists for the glory of God. Now, with that said, we've, we've got to be very careful because what happens in Christianity is this. A lot of times, heresy is a matter of emphasis gone astray. And what happens is sometimes people get a hold of doctrines like the glory of God and the pendulum swings way over here. And the next thing you know, the glory of God is spoken about like God is some like tyrant up in heaven like with like a Napoleon complex. Like some people talk about the glory of God like God is the universe's biggest narcissist. And he's like up in heaven like, yeah, you know, sucks to be you, but I'm in charge, you know. And uh, I'm going to actually crank up the heat in your life just to get a little bit more glory out of your life. And so let's, let's put you under the, the, the burner, the Bunsen burner for a little bit and see how you do. Some people, they read about everything being for the glory of God and they start to think that's God. In fact, Richard Dawkins believed this about 
God in the Bible. He said this, the God of the Old Testament, arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it. He's petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infantile. I don't even know half these words that he goes on and says, but God is this horrible person. Some people read the Bible saying that everything is for the glory of God and not their glory. They feel threatened. They feel, oh no, I'm in trouble. That's like, that's like a threat to me. Because deep down inside, you know, our flesh is so skeptical of God that we're always like on the border of viewing God like an, like an egotistical jerk. That's our flesh. John Owen in his book, Indwelling Sin and Believers, said there's even part of Christians that hates the gospel because it hates anything that gives glory to God and the love of God is the thing that gives God the most glory. So there's even a part of a Christian that thinks that God doesn't love them and hates them. That's actually a part of our flesh, even the best believer. And so there's a part of us, we sort of think that everything existing for the glory of God is sort of like dangerous for us. But here's the deal. Here's the truth. When God tells us in the Bible that everything exists for His glory, that's not God being egotistical or narcissistic. That's actually God being very gracious. Because, because God is the only person in the universe who, when He focuses on Himself, everyone else benefits. You missed your shout moment, folks. Now, I li- I, we live... Amen. We got one person that's got it. I know I'm connecting. Uh, listen, God, listen. we live in a culture, everybody says, you do you. I'm going to do me. I'm going to focus on my pleasure, my glory. When that happens, guess what happens? People get hurt. Right? You put humanism at the center of your life, guess what? People are going to get hurt. It ain't going to work out in the end. But God is love. That's his very heart. Our hearts Twisted, warped, crooked, God's heart, God is love. And so God is the only being in the universe who can be safely trusted to be told, hey, go ahead and do you, bro. He's the only person that we can say that to and actually have some kind of security and comfort that we're not going to get burned in the end. And so God is the only person who can safely seek his own glory. In fact, he should be encouraged to seek his own glory. Because I'm going to tell you right now, when God seeks his own glory, it's going to go well for us. You're like, do you have a verse for that, Jeff? You sound like one of those TV guys. Here, I got a verse for you, right? Romans 8.28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. It's right there. God has the glory. He's got the power. He's LeBron, bro. He's, got, he's the coach, he's the GM, and he's the top player, right? He's at all. He got it all. And listen, this is what he does. He causes everything, everything to work for the believer's good. Which means this. I, I, I like Jerry Bridges. He's in glory now as well. He had a quote that's marvelous talking about Romans 8.28. Check this out. It's a nugget. God's glory and the good of his people are are always in harmony with one another. God never pursues His glory at the expense of the good of His people, nor does He ever seek our good at the expense of His glory. He has designed His internal purpose so that His glory and our good are inextricably bound together. They are like Siamese twins, bro. Best way I can illustrate this, 
scales. God's glory, our good, always, Romans 8, 28 said, always in perfect balance. God never says, you know what? I'm going to make Jeff's life miserable just so I can squeeze a little bit more fame for my name. He never does that. And on the flip side, God never blesses our socks off so much that we're spoiled rotten and it decreases His glory and His honor. They're always in perfect harmony. God was not obligated to do that. God, by His own free will, says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make my glory, my honor, my praise, my worship bound to your good. That. You know anybody like that in your life besides God? Who says, I want to be in charge of the remote and everything, and you know what? I've got your best intentions at mind. You don't know anyone like that except God. And so we need to kind of have all that in the backdrop of our minds when we talk about verse 4. Because when Jesus says to the disciples, this illness happened for the glory of God, we got to be careful the pendulum doesn't swing over to humanism or God is the biggest narcissist in the universe, okay? Because there's going to be a way that God's going to receive praise and glory and honor, and yet everyone there is going to benefit. It's going to happen, as the rest of the Bible teaches. And so the question is, how is that going to happen? How in the world is the death of Lazarus going to give glory to God and benefit people? And the answer is this, through people believing in Jesus Christ. This text is all about belief. I mean, Jesus is clear over and over again. He says, this happened so the disciples would believe. This happened so that Martha would believe. This happened so that everyone standing around would believe, the crowd Everybody. Jesus wants everybody to believe. That's what this is about. And so how is God going to be glorified and a man benefited through the death of Lazarus? The answer is through people putting their faith in Jesus Christ and being saved. That's what's going to happen. And so the main takeaway this morning from this text, main takeaway, we call it at our church a nugget. This is the main nugget of the morning, okay? Sometimes bad things happen to good people to spread belief in Jesus Christ. Sometimes your suffering isn't even about you. It's about the person next to you. You've got to be so careful with the moralism. Again, we took the first two chapters out and the last two chapters and we've kept everything in the middle. It's like a Twinkie, right? We, we've got to be so careful because if you view every trial that you encounter as like, man, what did I do now? What's God teaching me? I wish I knew the lesson here. What haven't I learned yet, God? If you view every trial that way, in a moralistic way, chastening for sin, here's what's going to happen. You're going to miss so much of what God is doing through your suffering. Because sometimes your suffering is not to teach you a lesson, it's to teach someone else belief. And that's why Jesus, after he actually, you know, what do you call that? I guess people say it's not resurrection, it's resuscitation, whatever. He gives Lazarus life, bro, and he comes out with the grave clothes. After he does that, Jesus never says one word to Lazarus about his sin. He's not like, hey, now listen, now you better not do scratch-offs again after this, okay? I saw you at the gas station, okay? You know, Peter saw you down at the Sunoco. You had a freaking ring of $75 worth of scratch-offs there, okay? We saw you. Now, that's not what he says to Lazarus. It's not about his sin. It's about belief. 
And one of the ways that God evangelizes the world is through the suffering of his people. It really is. That's what this text is teaching us, you know? And I can't tell you, it's amazing to me how like backslidden Christians, you put them in like a trial and all of a sudden, bro, it's like they turn into like superstar believers. I mean, it just, as Peter says, 1 Peter 1, it purifies our faith. It takes out the impurities. It gets us focused, man. It gets us all in the game. And I've seen people, man, they're half in, half out church. All of a sudden, God cranks the heat up, and they're praying in a hospital room. And all of a sudden, people are like, dang, bro, this Christianity's real. Can't tell you how many times someone has gone through a suffering or a trial or gone to the hospital, and people, like even nurses, like on the nursing floor, like they see people praying or whatever, it leads to some great thing in God's name, you know. Suffering doesn't happen because God isn't all-loving or all-powerful. Suffering happens because God is both of those things, and He wants other people to know Him, not just us. And so sometimes our suffering is going to lead directly to the salvation of other people. You know, it's, I, I heard a testimony once from a, a man named John MacArthur. He's a, he's a famous Christian. Um, and uh, he, he went in for a minor surgery. Uh, I think he had like an old football injury from years ago. And so he had like, get like the knee thing, they go in and clean out your knee, scar tissue, whatever. So he goes in there, it's like very small, minimally invasive. Complications happen. A blood clot goes up and hits his lungs and he has like a pulmonary embolism. Like, yeah, well, like not good. So like routine surgery turns into like life-threatening condition. Like he's on death's door, like unexpectedly. And I bet when that blood clot hit his lungs, he wasn't like, you know what? This is for the glory of God. I just can't wait to see how it works, you know? Now, he's a godly dude, but I'm sure he was thinking, God, what the heck did I do? You know, this guy's like a famous Christian preacher guy. It's written like a thousand books or something. I don't know. But God did something really, really amazing through all that. What happened is this. Uh, he survived. And so he was prescribed to like this lung doctor, this specialist to, to work with him. And through the testimony of him and his wife and his family, um, this lung doctor, this lung specialist, saw the great faith in this family. And so this lung doctor actually started coming to his church, sitting on the front row the first week. He starts coming week after week. Next thing you know, he gets saved. Next thing you know, his life turns around. And looking back on all that, looking back on that, like that minor knee surgery that went haywire, MacArthur said this. He said, I understood that this was God's way of evangelizing this doctor. He understood that this was for a purpose. It was for the purpose of reaching this other guy for Jesus. And it's funny because he said like he was almost arguing with God. Like, God, couldn't there be like a plan B or something? You know, like, you know, and I'm sure Lazarus thought that too. He's like, God, couldn't you like do like a block party or, you know, multiply food again? Why kill me? You know, why not Martha at least? You know, she's always complaining. You know what I'm saying? Like, seriously. God uses our suffering to bring other people to know him. And that's exactly what happened. Check this out. Mission accomplished. After Jesus raises him from the dead, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Mission accomplished. So God uses our suffering. Why does it happen? One of the reasons is God uses it to reach people. And listen, I want to encourage you. I have no idea what you're going through. No idea. I know a lot of people, I don't know if it's the full moon right now, there's a lot of people that are going through a lot of crazy stuff right now. But I want you to know a couple of things. First of all, God has a plan and a purpose behind it. And you have no idea 
what God could do through whatever you're going through. You have no idea. And, and I realize, because I'm human too, and I'm humanistic a lot of times, I know some of us are thinking, but Jeff, how in the world do you get to the point where you embrace your suffering for the sake of reaching other people instead of being so self-centered and humanistic that you view suffering as something that impinges upon your own comfort and happiness? How do you get there? How do I get that mature view of my suffering and view reaching other people through my hell on earth a good thing? How do I get there? You realize another hell on earth. The cross. The only way you're going to learn to reject humanism and begin to embrace the glory of God through your suffering is by to meditate deeply upon the cross of Jesus Christ. Because listen, Jesus' cross is the ultimate example of someone that's innocent suffering for the sake of reaching others. Ultimate example. Jesus left the comforts of heaven to come to this earth to be slandered, spit upon, killed. And the whole reason was for the glory of God, yes, but the glory of God through the salvation of sinners, of people that didn't know Him. And if I can encourage you with just one thing, of like when you ask the whole question, like why should I embrace suffering for the glory of God? Here's why. You are never more like Jesus than when you suffer for the sake of reaching other people. Never. You are never walking more closely in the footsteps of Jesus Christ than when you voluntarily embrace suffering and say, you know what, this sucks right now, but I know God's going to do some amazing things through this. You are never more like Jesus than when you suffer in that way. And the way that we avoid being bitter and cynical about our Christian life and viewing it like God's out to get us is by meditating deeply upon the cross. And if we are willing to embrace suffering for the sake of reaching other people for Jesus, because we have no idea what God's doing, if we're willing to do that, there's no telling the amount of good that we can do in this world. I want to close with this. There's a, another famous missionary in Christian history. His name's Adoniah Judson. And I know maybe you're, this is your first time here at Grace Life Deltona and you're like, man, you guys talk a lot about dead people and you guys quote a lot of dead people and why, why is that? Here, here's the reason why. I think Tommy and I, we, we personally believe that if you're passionate about something and you love it, you'll know a little history about it, right? I mean, if, you, if, if we had lunch after church at Zaxby's and you're like, man, I love baseball, I play it every time I can, and I'm like, okay, cool. Who do you think's the best home run hitter of all time? Babe Ruth, Mark McGuire, or Sammy Sosa? And you're like, who are those guys? If you had no idea who they even were, I'd probably question how much you love baseball because you know anything about it. I'm not saying we should know everything. We, don't, we, we geek out a little bit in here, okay? But here's the reason why. I think it's important to know at least a little bit about the people who gave their lives and died to preserve and save the message of the gospel so that we can enjoy it today. That's why we mentioned so many dead guys. That's just a little caveat there. But Adonai Judson, missionary to Burma, India. And before he even left, man, he was warned. He was warned by the late, great William Carey, the father of modern-day missions. He said, listen, don't go there. It's a dark place, bro. I ain't going to hear you. And um, the living conditions there were absolutely horrible at the time. I mean, everywhere in, in, in India, in Burma, was like Calcutta, okay? But Adoniah went anyway, and he arrived July 13, 1813, and he began 33 years of suffering with malaria, with 108 degree heat during the day, 
I mean, cholera was, was terrible there. And uh, a dysentery, which is you just can't keep any food down. You're just, just running through you. He spent 33 years there. He was married three times because his first two wives died on the mission field. He had 13 kids. Seven of them died on the mission field as infants, as toddlers. He's burying people all the time that he loves. And during the Indian-American War, because he was a white man in India, they actually arrested him. They thought he was a spy. And they tortured him in an attempt to make him confess to being an undercover spy. And so they would actually like take a stake, like, like one of those pig roasting poles, you know, and they would hang him upside down at night so all the blood would rush to his head. He couldn't even sleep at night. He spent 33 years there dealing with that kind of suffering. But I'm going to tell you this. Spending 33 years there, and during that, he did some amazing things. He translated the Bible into the Burmese language, the entire Bible, and he also wrote little gospel pamphlets, little, little, little tracts to pass out to people that told people about Jesus Christ. And listen to this. This is one of the letters he received back, just a part of a letter he received back one time about his ministry. Check this out. Sir, we have seen a writing that tells us of an eternal God. Are you the man who gives away such writings? If so, pray, give us one, for we want to know the truth before we die. Are you the Jesus Christ man? I got hit by the Holy Ghost when I said that. That's one of my favorite quotes from Christian history. Are you the Jesus Christ man? I mean, don't you want people to say that about you? Are you the Jesus Christ woman? Are you the, Je Are you the person that's always talking about Jesus? Give us a writing that tells us about Jesus Christ. He would have never received that letter if he hadn't have submitted to the suffering. And friends, who might God reach through us if we will but suffer a little?